Welcome to Series 2 of the GM Moving Podcast, where we share with you stories of how people and partners across Greater Manchester are creating the conditions for active lives for all. I'm Eve, Studio Director at Greater Sport, leading, supporting and connecting GM Moving, Greater Manchester's Movement for Movement. For those of you that have been listening in to Series 2 so far will have heard that we've been on a grand tour of Greater Manchester, speaking with local partners across each of the 10 districts to hear their stories of the work they're doing to take a place-based, whole system approach to physical activity. Well, for this episode and for the next couple of episodes, we're now going to be talking with leads who are working across the whole of Greater Manchester on what we call our GM Moving Catalysts. These catalysts are the things that help accelerate system change. We've learned that if we invest in and pay attention to these things, they'll speed up the rate of change across the whole system to enable more active lives. Today's podcast focuses on the catalyst of engagement. This is the way that we engage and involve communities to co-design, co-produce, co-deliver and ultimately own sustainable and realistic solutions that enable active lives for all. Today, I'm in the podcasting studio at Manchester Central Library with Kat, the GM Moving Engagement Lead. I start by asking Kat my favourite question, why moving matters to her. So my personal relationship with moving started off really badly with um, physical activity at school has an activity to be endured and gotten rid of quite quickly. So it wasn't the best of start. And while I enjoyed watching competitive sports, I knew I was never quite made for that. What I am enjoying about moving now I'm older is the sense of social cohesion that goes with it. So uh, events like park run, where the personal best is against yourself. It doesn't have to be a PB every week. It's absolutely fine. And that absolutely stunning sense of community that you get from it. Um, I have livid memories of walking up um, Angina Hill for people who know the uh, Heaton Park Park Run and getting the people who've done it in 17 minutes coming and grabbing you by the elbow and really, really spurring you on, which is absolutely lovely. And I suppose, again, moving away from the concept of physical activity as such, but moving in particular, I've recently re-enjoyed my love of gardening. Um, It came back quite strongly during COVID just because it seemed to be the only thing that we were allowed to do and again super conscious of the privilege that goes with that Um, but there was something really really lovely about getting your hands into the earth and having sort of fresh air on your face and I think anybody who gardens will know that however much your posture should be correct and the knees should be bent at the right angle you get the backache from gardening that only gardening will give you and it's a really lovely feeling bizarrely. Yeah, it's been a common theme, really, of this podcast to people having a very negative experience of physical activity and going, it's not for me. It's not been for something me. It didn't feel like it was something for me. Um, And that's, I guess, a lot of what your work has has been about, hasn't it, really, to how to shift some of that narrative and perception as a whole as to what moving means to people. Uh, And I remember one of my first conversations with you, I think I probably just started in the role, and we were talking about the Britain Thinks research uh, and how that had come to the was it kind of you know I can't be bothered sort of narrative really and how we've almost avoided that whilst you know as the research showed us for lots of people (laughs) either they've had a negative experience has put them off or it does feel like it's a real effort so there's quite a 
a job which you've been critical to and really going, if it's about active lives for all, how do we shift that and how do we engage people in something that, you know, potentially hasn't appealed to them at all? So go on, a little bit about, we've heard about your, yeah, about gardening and about why it matters to you. So what's your role? How have you been involved? Um, so my role, uh, wearing a variety of, of hats. So I'm uh, primarily uh, one of the strategic leads at 10GM, which is a joint venture that supports the voluntary, the community and the social enterprise um, infrastructures across uh, the boroughs of Greater Manchester. And we started our relationship with GM Moving Gosh, back in 2017, I want to say, I joined the Gem Moving family, as it were, in um, in 2018. And I think what was really, really important to me, and I think it's been strengthened by both the Sport England strategy and the Gem Moving in Action strategy. And if you think of the strap line, it is active lives for all. It isn't physical activity for all, because we did learn that that's what people can find off-putting. And I thought there was a real humility and honesty in not normalising that conversation into the I can't afford to, but running is free or life gets in the way, but you should find time. There's something about really, really addressing what it is that matters to people and what moving means to them so that the activity almost becomes the byproduct of a far more fluid and natural conversation. So part of my role with GM Moving has been uh, with engagement and in the main, um, there's been a split, if you like, between engagement, mentors, engagement with communities. So how do we get to the heart of people in uh, place-based conversations uh, at neighbourhood level? And then on the other side of it, there's been uh, conversations around engagement with the system. And I think part of my job has been to sort of align those two elements so that if you are talking about communities and the system, they are not these two separate beasts and you want to stop that hierarchy of the system being somewhat up there and the communities being somewhat on the other side of it. So a lot of the work has gone into really trying to get a better understanding of what is community engagement, what is community leadership, and actually that's the system, or at least that's a really, really big part of the system. And I think those conversations have just been so key, haven't they? You really get to some of the I think some of the, the grits in terms of where, to be honest, the real shift needs to happen. And um, because in the car conversations, again, people talk about the system and we talk about the system and that language a lot, don't we? Yes. Like, well, what does that mean? You know, and if that's just about all those different people and partners that all interrelate within a space, but it can, it, it does often feel as though it's about the formal systems and structures and power holders. And I used to end up talking about the ecosystem because that felt like that was the only way to make sure that we were thinking wider, more holistically, to include the more organic parts of an ecosystem. Um, but that language itself can turn lots of people off as well. So how in that job, which I think is is critical to our mission of Active Lives for All, everyone has a role to play, how have you gone about trying to align then people, communities, formal structures, systems? It's been an interesting journey, and I would stress the word journey, and I would also, based into what is by no means complete, but um, I think what's been really, really useful in this space is the different approach that you're moving has taken within the work. And there is an alignment, I would say, of ways of working, of really fundamental values, that has brought the VCSE in, into the conversation as uh, as an equal partner 
and perhaps more challengingly, and again, um, hats off to Jim moving for, for, for giving that permission as a bit of a critical friend and something of a check and challenge role in terms of how are we talking about this and what are we going to do about the language that we use to talk about moving more? What are we going to do to challenge some of the less fortunate language that still permeates within systems? So this notion of the hard-to-reach communities, the deprived areas, where actually uh, there is a strength-based conversation to be had. And I thought that what, what was absolutely crucial is and like I say, that alignment of purpose and language and values that really, really enabled us to say, if this is community led, then let's co-produce that and really co-produce it in a meaningful way. So there's honesty. Yes. In buckets. Yes, absolutely. The challenging. So often we've heard of co-design, co-production, but when the experience is very different. So being able to call that out being able to give people experiences of what good looks and feels like so they don't just get told what it isn't. That's a lot to do across an area the size of Greater Manchester. And whilst you are phenomenal, cat, <laughs> you are one person. So how have you gone about trying to do all of that within you know, GM moving as, as you say, as a, as a space which has given you freedom and has lots of the conditions and there's a movement. How, how have you gone about trying to make those changes happen? I think Greater Manchester in particular, and particularly right now, is in the middle of, when I say a perfect storm, I mean a good storm. So there are some synergies that I think it's absolutely vital that we capitalise on in, in this particular space. So we've had a complete rethink of Sport England strategy and priorities. We've had a way of turning GM uh, moving strategy into tangible action. We've also had um, the completion of the GM uh, VCSC Accord, which is a partnership between the uh, Greater Manchester Combined Authority, the then Health and Social Care Partnership as was, and the VCSC sector. We've had the Mayor's Greater Manchester strategy coming out, We've had the VCSC State of the Sector report coming out. And I think essentially, once you read between the lines, there is an absolute core value and there is an absolute core, really tangible desire to put people at the heart of everything that happens. And I think it's the absolute perfect chance to take the most and the best out of all of those strategies, to have those honest conversations with with people. And, And like you say, having asset-based conversations that actually tell you what is the art of the possible as opposed to this is what you shouldn't be doing. So when I started the job, a lot of the conversations I was having with localities went along the lines of, I've got it now. I've absolutely got it. I know what not to do, but I don't know what to do. And I think looking back, I possibly was a little bit purist in sort of thinking, well, there isn't such a thing as the perfect co-production manual by definition. It's it's an approach you take, it isn't a product, it isn't a thing. But actually, what we then became faced with, um, and talking to core team colleagues at GM Moving, I realised I wasn't the only person hearing it, is what we then defined as the fear of the blank page. So when the out of the possible is everything, unless there is an element of framing around it, mm. it can come across as being really, really daunting. So I think with, with best intentions... We sort of sold the blank page as, isn't it exciting? There are no KPIs. You have all the permissions in the world. But actually how it was received in some instances was that I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. So 
we we have pulled together some really 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 good examples of stuff that's happening in Greater Manchester and uh, across the UK and internationally. Uh, we run a fortnightly co-production conversation uh, last year, which brought together people from from Coma Crastle from Ireland to Within Hearts and Minds to uh, theatre productions, and everybody gave a flavour of how it could be done as opposed to how it should be done. Mm. So we didn't intend to be prescriptive mm. about it. But I think it gave a really, really good idea of the principles that sit behind it. So there's the alignment across all those strategies that you referred to and a sense that they help create the, the right conditions. There's, there's clarity there as to putting people at the centre. And then it, what you're describing there is that kind of operationalizing that then. So, you know, we know what often happens is you have that massive implementation gap between you have strategies that set out this vision and approach. But just as you describe, if you have people on the ground who don't know what how to make that happen in practice, then it change doesn't happen and and then people become frustrated because these strategies, you know, yeah. become meaningless. So by giving people examples, um, not in a prescriptive way, but in an illustrative way of the many ways that you can put this into practice, that this can be done, um, you've helped to translate that into action. <laughs> um, and I guess how, obviously we're here to talk about, you know, GM moving in action effectively in localities and the work of the local pilot and that investment to support that. So how, in all of that, how has that investment in local in the local pilot and local pilot leads, how has that supported that process? Um, I think the, the investment has been absolutely crucial in allowing localities to uh, really, truly adopt a, a sort of a test and learn approach into what might work and what mightn't work. I think it's fair to say there is enough desktop research being done about how not to sell physical activity. And I think what we have seen is with the provision of grants and very often very, very small amounts of grants, I'm always amazed at what people can come up with with £500. It is absolutely incredible. And I've seen examples where people will tell you this has actually been life-changing. Mm-hmm. So there's something really, really important, if I think, about the role of this infrastructure within that process of grant giving where it doesn't have to cost the earth. And, and very often it ticks the boxes of so much more than just physical activity. If you are giving trainers to a group of people experienced in homelessness and you are giving them some, somewhere warm to go and get changed to then have a shower. It becomes so much bigger than itself. And that's something that I think is probably fair to say has resonated across all the 10 localities, that it has an exponential effect mm. on not just moving more, but health inequalities, particularly now cost of living crisis, if you name it, it absolutely spans the whole of the space. I guess I see some of your superpowers is that you often are in all those different spaces as well. It feels like you're constantly picking up tips and learning from multiple spaces across Greater Manchester and further beyond and then helping bring those to GM moving to help us put into practice you know, our strategy. So you've been able to knit together, you know, some of the work, I guess, going on around whether it's homelessness or around, you know, asylum work, around poverty, all these other parts of the system where 
effectively they're trying to do the same thing aren't they trying to go how do we do this differently how do we put all those strategies in a gm you know that we referred to and our reform principles into practice genuinely and that's been i'd say a real superpower of yours i think it's a gm superpower i think um with absolutely no offense to any other local pilots so that's my disclaimer but i think uh, in no small part due to the evolution agenda, there is a system maturity in Greater Manchester that allows exactly to do what you've mentioned. So I've lost count of the amount of spaces where you go in and you kind of start sort of mapping ways of working and you sort of think, I've, I've, I've seen this one before. And the moment you mention, oh, this really, really reminds me of the approach that GM Moving is taking, a lot of people will tell you exactly. And that to me is an absolute sign that we've nailed this bit. Um, the ways of working I'm seeing in GM Moving are very, very closely related to the ways of working I'm seeing, for example, with community-led initiatives with the Violence Reduction Unit mm-hmm. or the approach that uh, the work of changing futures with multiple disadvantage has taken. Yeah. It has shaped uh, the way that Transport for Greater Manchester is looking at active neighbourhoods and active travel. Like I said, it is it is a journey, but it's good to be able to sort of at least identify what that road kind of looks and feels like. I'd agree with all of that and that, that level of system maturity. I think that's why we're seeing, I guess, others from other parts of the country and to some extent now internationally going, oh, what is it that's going on there? <laughs> that there's something in GM, um, sometimes you call it kind of, you know, sort of a Goldilocks yeah. space that somehow the conditions and that hasn't yeah. happened by magic. That's, I think, come about from years actually of, of nurturing uh, some of those key principles and ways of working, yeah, which you've been able to continue to, to shine a light on um, and yeah. stitch together. It's still to say that there are still some elements of devolution that could be more devolved. Um, Go on. <laughs> so um, there are some conversations that we have had with national partners where I think the intent is there. I think the desire to do different things differently is there. I think that there is a recognition that there is some clunkiness to some of the national aspects of the system, but there isn't the power to be able to do anything about it other than to lobby for more. I don't think anyone would argue against that. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely still on that journey. So what are some of the examples you'd point to around that clunkiness? So I think an, an, an obvious one has been the uh, the effort that colleagues have been putting in with colleagues from the Department of Work and Pensions in terms of how does that relationship look like, both in terms of the employment workforce, but also the, um, you call them service users or customers or clients, why not just call them people, on on, on a journey through getting back to work or uh, managing a disability. And so being part of a welfare benefit system where being seen to be moving might actually result in or a perception of, uh, say, for example, benefit sanctions. Mm-hmm. And we've had some really, really good conversation at GM level. But I think part of the tension is that the policy obviously happens in Westminster. So however many allies you manage to find in the regional space, uh, yes, absolutely, let's campaign and lobby about it. But ultimately, the, the strings are held in London. So that, that to me was possibly the most obvious example of we absolutely recognise where you're coming from. We absolutely wouldn't want to be the people who actually will stop somebody from taking a stroll down the park. Mm. But that's not for us to decide. Mm. So we talk, don't we, about sort of locally led 
which is key <laughs> to what you're enabling that to actually happen. Um, and then GM enabled, which again, as we're talking about that maturity in the system, is enabling this work to, to happen and giving you and others the freedom and the sort of protection really to, to test and learn. But then the need for that nationally supported and I guess this investment from Sport England into the local pilot is an example of where it has genuinely supported us to walk the talk in terms of doing things differently and, you know, bringing Devo difference maybe to life. But there are all these other examples where those bodies that are funded nationally, that are governed nationally, don't have the flexibility to work in a way which is genuinely aligned. And I think that's potentially going to be one of Sport England's biggest challenges in that um, the strategy itself, and if you look at the priorities that they set, and to me particularly that connecting communities is absolutely key, needs to then be operationalised and translated into really tangible examples of what happens if you had a walking meeting with a person who's giving you employment advice. Mm. What happened if... You are on disability benefits, but on a good day, you really enjoy a stroll and somebody sees you. And and there are plenty of other examples like that. There's something interesting that's beginning to emerge now with the uh, Sport England Together Fund, where what we are seeing is quite a lot of applications where the, uh, the core cost of the activities is travel. So not so much travel expenses, but travel itself is the inequality. Mm-hmm. Um, I am having conversations with uh, Transport for Greater Manchester about this, and I think we're picking this up in all sorts of other spaces, particularly with um, asylum and refugee seekers spaces where transport is a massive, massive concern. And I think it will take all of us as allies to sort of strengthen that coalition to then bring the the message back to national to sort of say... Maybe funding needs to be restructured where transport as a core cost uh, is accepted while equally not sticking the plaster on the issue of transport. And we've seen what Andy Burnham has been able to do with buses. And can we think more creatively, perhaps, around can we do that with trains? Could we do that with trams? Mm. Could we create a system where, say, uh, not at rush hour, some people may travel completely free or at reduced cost? Because very often the inequalities is the getting from A to B. And what's in B is almost immaterial. So it could be the football pitch. Mm. It could be the supermarket that accepts healthy start vouchers or cards. It could be the place where you go to your hospital appointment. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that came out so clear, didn't it? In all, in all our engagement around the GM moving and action strategy um, was that if you don't enable people to get about and to access their local neighbourhood, their local yes. parks, their leisure centres, their you know all those things, then they're not going to be able to live an active life, and that therefore that need you know and that strand I guess in the strategy around the need to support an integrated system is key. That we we have to influence transport, and of course we'd say and try and influence that in a way as well, which designs moving more into yes into transport as well um, as an integrated part whether you walk into the bus stop or you're you yes. know, cycling a journey so that's you know degree that feels like a key clunk in the system yes. <laughs> that, that uh, we're collectively trying to to shift so I guess the role your role um, as part of 10GM and your relationships and knowledge and understanding of the VCSE the voluntary community and social enterprise sector 
which also includes faith faith groups, doesn't it, has been really key. So we, we've talked about having yeah, the metaphor of an octopus, those tentacles reaching down to people in all communities across Greater Manchester. Is there anything that you could add around, I guess, the role of the VCSE and how important it has been to ensure that you know you are an equal partner in all of this and the contribution that makes? You were talking about um, ecosystem before, and I think it's fair to say within the VCSE itself, um, there is a massive um, what I tend to call beautifully messy um, <laughs> ecosystem. So in the recent findings from the uh, last State of the Sector report, it was established that around Greater Manchester there are shy of 18,000 organisations, voluntary community, faith, social enterprise, you name them, and a good 70% of them are what we would call micro-organisations, so they have an income of less than 10 grand a year, and they do absolutely, absolutely phenomenal work. I think the strength of 10GM is because we are very much place-based. So anybody who is familiar with Greater Manchester will have heard of what we call the 10 plus 1 conversation. So you will have your 10 boroughs and where there is an infrastructure organisation, they will have a really, really deep knowledge of uh, community groups coming together. How do you connect them with each other? How do you support them? When do you step out of the way, which is um, equally important? But then you are in a position to sort of almost elevate that conversation to um, to city region and you can then influence partners within whether that's a combined authority, whether that's the newly formed uh, integrated care partnership, whether it's transport. But it is with the richness that comes through the lived experience of communities. And I think that that's that's a big um, selling point. And if anyone's listening and has no idea what you mean by infrastructure organisation, can you explain? So what we mean by uh, VCS infrastructure organisations are those organisations that have been put in place, like I said, very, very much anchored where they are. So, for example, in Salford, we will have Salford CVS. In Bolton, we will have Bolton CVS. In Manchester, we've got Mac. In uh, Rochdale, Oldham and Tameside, we have um, Action Together. And um, there are a team of people who are working with communities, side by side with communities, to make good things happen. <laughs> and that, that, that support can take all sorts of shapes. It could be support with fundraising. It could be support with governance. And I think in that space, if there is one good thing to come out of COVID, is um, the absolute phenomenal work that uh, mutual aid groups and any other groups that may or may not have decided to call themselves mutual aid did during the pandemic. And there are phenomenal amounts of learning and insights that they they basically led the way, didn't they? They didn't wait for anybody's permission, never mind saying sorry later. They just went. Mm. And you think, well, if that's the out of the possible, then what it is that we can learn and keep now? And it was a really, really good dynamic relationship that you could see when it was working well, where you have a vicious infrastructure that's supporting uh, the grassroots to be the best of themselves. Yes. So we've heard some of the challenges. I guess in terms of the joys... Uh, and what you've seen work well is there anything in particular or any stories you'd want to point to oh there's loads there's, there's absolutely <laughs> loads on, I, I, I want to give an example for each of the locality and I know we haven't got the time for that um, I think at a GM level I think the biggest joy is that seeing 
that uh, GM moving approaches are really, really embedded in system thinking and system and system change, and seeing other partners coming on board and sort of thinking that that is possible. That there is a different way of working, and that absolute commitment, as you say, to then go about operationalizing it. So, if I think of the example of the groups that have been set up on the back of Black Lives Matter, we have subgroups working to this day on anything from commitment to language to commitment to inclusion, again, with very, very tangible practical actions that we all take from the one time we meet to the to the next time. So it's embedded and it feels real. It feels like I can, I can actually, mm-hmm. I can see it, I can see it happening. And then there are a, a huge variety of examples from... Uh, from various localities of where the local pilot has really, really sort of shifted conversations. A particular favourite of mine is there was one time in the uh, local pilot in Berry, where a decision was made by the steering group to take the GM moving investment principles to the uh, local youth cabinet for some deconstructive work. And again, absolute hats off to people who knew they were going to be really, really challenged. And boy, were we challenged. Excellent. Um, We ended up writing a a manifesto with them. So uh, we ended up commissioning a local artist who gave us sort of infographics of what everything that she's kind of heard heard in that space. And it was a really, really good challenge to self in terms of whether is that commitment to language. And as as you say, part of the system language is quite clunky. Why do we not say what we mean and why don't we do it more often? It was a really, really, really good experience. So you talked there about the work that's going on. Um, it's great to hear that you feel like that feels tangible and there's accountability there in terms of Black Lives Matter. What else are you seeing change um, now there's such a strong commitment, I think, to you know, active lives for all and good lives for all? Have you seen shifts that are helping put that into practice? You can definitely sense the aspiration in wanting to address inequalities and that's probably where the attention will need to be focused moving forward, both at GM level and in uh, in localities level. I think there's probably a good long way to go before we see real tangible examples of it having landed and landed well. I think investment like the uh, former Tackling Inequalities Fund uh, now the Together Fund for Sport England um, are really, really, really helping. And again, I'm seeing that shift from what used to be community engagement with endless kind of rabbit hole conversations about what is and isn't co-production, moving more towards community leadership, yeah. which I would also take with a little bit of a pinch of salt in the sense that uh, there are a lot of conversations around community power both at regional level and national level and international level. And to me, there's a little bit of a risk there that that in itself turns into the industry that kind of eats itself. Yeah. So could we see maybe fewer able, white, middle-aged, I'm going to say men, being in charge of having those conversations which are or feel like are not directly relevant to them? So there's, there's a lifting of... I'm not massively keen on the word lived experience either, but for want of a better definition of those experts by experience really, really leading the way. And I think really that should be the long-term the long-term goal. So how do we really centre and support those who have lived experience or grace proximity to lead in this space as opposed to, yeah, 
Yeah. I'm reminded of a quote by John Amici when uh, back at the height of Black Lives Matter, I had numerous conversations with, yes, white men of an age, sort of saying, I'm not experiencing what you're experiencing. And so I will move out of the way. And I think his point was, that might be correct, but your voice is still being heard more than mine. So what I need you to do, actually, is to be alongside me yeah. and give me that platform and give me that microphone. Yep. So you referred to the Together Fund. Can you just walk us through what has been done differently there? Yes. So um, the Sports England Together Fund is probably better known as um, the Tackling Inequalities Fund, which came out in three um, separate phases and concentrated on um, lower socioeconomic groups, culturally diverse communities, um, disabled people and people with long-term health conditions. And what they did is they brought together the learning from COVID as well as the learning on different ways of um, looking at the legalities of it, if you like, and the governance of it, if you like, where um, at Greater Sport um, we set up a panel that would not just sift through applications but would support community group, would go to meet the funder events, would help people with application forms, would also be able to look at whether different investment might be better available for the activities that groups had in mind. And um, they established, I think they call them community connectors, and th- these are the people that will know their place absolutely inside out. So uh, they will be able to have rich, honest conversations and bring back with, you know, this is what the community wants. This is what we want to do. This is how we want to go about it. Can we have some investment, please? We're now going through a phase four of that group and the fund is now called the Together Fund. And at Greater Sport in particular, based on the uh, data that we have been able to um, look at in terms of COVID consequences, uh, we are concentrating on um, disabled people and people with long-term health conditions, uh, age 55 to 74, uh, people of South Asian and Chinese origin. And then we looked at the socioeconomic gap, which during COVID increased by 5.5% and has remained constantly scary, for want of a better definition. And so I think particularly with regards to cost of living crisis, something like the Together Fund is going to be absolutely crucial. So those community connectors, they are, as you describe, people that absolutely know their place. They've already got trusted relationships. Yes. They've got close proximities, we describe, to people who are you know, really experiencing sharp inequalities. And one of the things that when we was heavily involved at the outset of this in kind of negotiations with, with Sport England around the, the shifts in governance in this for this investment was around making sure that we could pay them. So recognising the value that they bring with their knowledge, with their own expertise, with their trust in the community and the time that they would then give to sharing this with people and groups who would never otherwise engage or come across the offer of funding. Um, and if they did, they, they might not think it's for them or have the, the kind of capacity, for want of a better word, to apply and the time to do that. And then lots of those in a traditional funding process would apply, but then wouldn't all be successful. So a lot of their time would be wasted in that process. Whereas in this way, and correct me if I've got anything wrong, people, for those community connectors have conversations. They might just record that conversation. That conversation comes back in a 
recording to the panel or it comes back in whatever form works for them and is targeted so it avoids just a massive people filling in forms Um, and that's we're really building on that in all a lot of our work now in trying to think about how we have we resource people and communities who we know are best placed to be honest to support other people to be active and to use that money you describe to go the furthest it possibly can absolutely i think there's a there's a commitment there that goes beyond let's streamline the application form there's a there's a more serious point i think to be made around the um, remuneration of it in terms of if we are talking about the voluntary sector as an equal partner and the example i always use is if the NHS is asking a GP, say, to take part in a consultation, you wouldn't give them a £10 Amazon voucher. So why are we getting £10 Amazon yeah. voucher? So there's something, I think, politically really, really important here about uh, not just remuneration as a thank you, but as a remuneration that's dignified and respectful for the work that's being done. Absolutely. Otherwise, is it equal partnership? Indeed. So any signs, kind of indicators of change in terms of the impact? So going right back to the beginning, to where we started about thinking about inactivity, thinking about some of those barriers to activity, um, some of the, you know, the language and is it about you and all the stuff that came out of Britain Thinks research. Are you seeing in all this work sense of a shift? I think some of the shift, I think we need to be really careful to... Uh, not just look at the shift, but trying to understand the reason behind the shift. So something that we've seen sort of more and more, and again, going back to that sort of cost of transport crisis, if you like, is some people will inevitably be walking more. Are they walking more because they can't afford to put petrol in the car? That's assuming they've not had to sell the car in the first place. Or are they walking more because they've made a conscious decision to sort of look after themselves that little bit better? And I think... There's some really good, solid work, research work to be done, I think, in that space in trying to sort of separate the two and treat them differently. I think a lot of the enthusiasm that COVID generated in terms of that freedom to go out one hour a day might have waned a little bit. But I keep going back to the idea of community first, activity second. And I think we have come together as communities. And and I don't think that's going anywhere fast. So there's something to be sort of capitalising, I think, in that space. So if anyone's listening and wants to get involved, what's your invitation or call to action? Can I have two? You can. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Just Um, because it's you. Thank you very much indeed. I shall abuse that position, gladly. So my first call to action is in the spirit of keeping the conversation going, let's really, really remind ourselves of the importance of active listening so that we become... The, the connectors and the facilitators and maybe the activators but we're not the originators so there's something about really really deeply listening to what matters to people what matters to you as opposed to what's the matter with you so let's keep going in that direction and really 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 sort of hammer it down and the second call to action is it's not so much a call to action it's a call for support so a lot of what we've been experiencing with 10GM, GM moving, and particularly with the system leadership work, is that we are seeing absolute great stuff happening at grassroots level, which will probably happen anyway, think mutual aid. And then you've got absolute key believers and allies at a really, really strategic level. 
And then the bit that gets sometimes missed out of where the complexity lies is what we've been calling, you know, the, that immovable middle or the trickle middle or however you want to call it. So it's a bit of a, a call for support. How can we enable and support and work alongside people who may not have the permissions? Uh, they may have the knowledge, they may have the will, they may have the desire, but maybe don't feel they have the permissions. And how do we, in a sense, change the conversation with the strategic leadership to shine a light on that? Because I think that's the bit that often gets forgotten and it's kind of where it gets clunky. Fantastic. Two great calls to action. So active listening, which hopefully everyone who's listening now has been doing and practising for the last 30 minutes and growing that muscle and then how do we ensure that people have that level of permission and, and freedom, which is critical to making change? And sometimes it's within your own gift. You don't realise what you're going to give yourself permission to do. But the reality is within structures that there are power. there is power that sits with some people and they, sometimes you do need to be given permission yes. in order to um, change the way things are done. That equal partnership of, of VCSE into the conversation lets constantly remind ourselves and challenge ourselves that it truly is an equal partnership yeah honestly a joy always thank you very much indeed it's been a pleasure thank you very much wow what a brilliant conversation we've heard once again how moving matters to everybody and how we can all play a role design moving back in to everyday life we would love to hear how you keep moving and the ways you're supporting others to live an active life so you can contact us on our socials on Facebook and Twitter. Just search Greater Sport and don't forget the hashtag GMMovingInAction. Please do share this episode with people and organisations who will find it useful. Sharing is caring. And join the movement for movement. A big thank you as ever to everyone who's investing in this work and playing their part to test, to learn and to make this happen. This series is a Mike Media production. 